Let me remind you, this is God's good and kind and gracious word to you this morning. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come, and everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. And he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, It is good, and they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from the farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will withhold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, for I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge. New, sharp, and having teeth, ye shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and ye shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them, and you shall rejoice in the Lord, and the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. When the poor and the needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valley. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together, that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the King of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, and that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may, we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know, and before him that we might say, he is right. There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed it, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one. Among these, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. 
Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask for his help in understanding his word. Pray with me, please. Father, we thank you that uh, you have given us your word today and that you have promised to give life by your word. Lord, uh, I pray in these ancient words that we would have new and fresh truth from you. That we would see the glory of Jesus Christ in his rule and reign over all of this world, over all of the nations of the world, and over all of the, the gods that other, others bow down to. That we would see the glory of Jesus Christ, his sovereign rule, and that we would bow our knee to him. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Every couple of years, the media will proclaim that some crime that's been committed and the prosecution of that crime, that it is the trial of the century. Now, that happens every couple of years. And so if it's the trial of the century, there really only can be one trial of the century. But they say it about every trial that comes up, every big trial every now and then. Well, I think in, in, in the 20th century, there were two trials that could have rightly been called the trial of the century. Um, the first one was in 1925, and it was the Scopes Monkey Trial. And Scopes Monkey Trial was uh, essentially about uh, whether or not in the state of Tennessee, whether or not evolution could be taught in schools. Um, it's so important that they covered it in most uh, history, history classes when you were in high school. Uh, and it was a vitally important uh, uh, trial, legal trial that took place. Um, I won't go into all the details of it, uh, but the reason why that trial was so important for the United States is because it marked, in many ways, a major transition for the United States away from its basically uh, Christian values and Christian beginnings to more secular, a more secular foundation uh, in the public schools or in the society in general. It kind of marked that major transition, the fact that we were moving away from, uh, from Christian belief. Uh, the second trial was in 1995, the O.J. Simpson trial. Uh, and that trial, I would say, is uh, one of the trials of the century, not because, uh, not because it did anything all that important, but because it revealed a lot about what we were as a nation. It revealed the fact that as a nation, we were uh, worshiping at the feet of entertainment and escapism more than we worship Jesus Christ. It revealed what the heart of America really was like and really is like. Uh, and in many ways, it revealed that true justice wasn't going to be found in the court systems. So those two trials, I think, uh, had a lot of cultural influence and revealed a lot about who we were uh, and could rightly be called trials of the century. Well, in our passage today, Isaiah is not calling us to witness 
a trial of the century, he's actually calling us to witness the trial of the millennium. The word millennium literally means thousand years. But the way that I want us to see this is that Isaiah is saying, you know, the millennium is really more than just the thousand years. He's saying that history in one sense, in one era of history, the Old Testament era is coming to a close. And he's saying there's going to be a trial to prosecute all of the events of history leading up to this time. So Isaiah is calling people to come to the trial of the millennium, of his millennium, of the Old Testament era. Now, last week in Isaiah, we saw that God announced comfort to his people. And he said, I want my people to be comforted. And now he's going to begin to explain in the following chapters and and the few chapters that come from from here. Well, uh, really the, the next 15 chapters, how God's people are going to receive comfort. Now, these proceedings and this trial is similar to what we see in our own courtrooms with a few cultural differences. So the trial is being called by Yahweh, who is the judge of heaven and earth, the creator of heaven and earth, and has the rightful place as the judge. The defendants in this case are the nations and the gods the nations worship. And then the victims of this case are God's people. So the church of the Old Testament, they're being called and they're the victims uh, of, uh, in this trial. There's a few questions that arise from this. The questions are, will there be any justice for God's people in the, this millennium? And will God uphold his covenant promises to his people, especially when, when uh, there's a bigger question that's in play? Because God's people deserve his wrath just as much as the nations do. And will God uphold his covenant promises, his promises to bless his people in spite of their turning from him? And and really, how will God do that? And this trial begins to answer those questions for us. I want to look at this uh, passage in three ways this morning. First of all, we're going to see the trial proceedings in verses 1 through 20. Secondly, we're going to see Yahweh's judgment in 21 through 29, and then finally, Yahweh's resolution in uh, chapter 42, 1 through 4. So let's first of all begin with the trial proceedings. Remember, we're being called to witness a trial. Well, the backdrop to Old Testament trial language is a theme that's called covenant law. And it's my experience, maybe it's your experience as well, that most Christians don't understand how to properly read or understand their Bibles because they don't understand how to read and understand. uh, Well, they're never really taught how to read and understand the Bible. It's one of my main objectives as a pastor that I really want to labor over teaching y'all how to read the Bible, Not not just telling you go and read it, Because it's an ancient document. It's full of a lot of hard things and hard things to understand. Uh, We're we're 2,000 years removed from the New Testament and thousands upon thousands of years more removed from many of the writings in the Old Testament. It's a hard thing to understand. And so I want to make sure that you understand how to read your Bibles, not just say good luck, right? So how should we be reading the Bible? You need to understand That the Bible, from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, it is a covenant document. 
And let me under, explain what that means. Let me first of all explain what a covenant is. There are a lot of definitions of covenant that I like. I'm going to use the most simple definition from our children's catechism. And that's this, that a covenant is a relationship God establishes with mankind by His Word. What is a covenant? Covenant at its very root, basically it is a relationship. But it's more than just a relationship. It's a relationship that God establishes with man by His Word. It's a relationship with God that He establishes by His Word. And the Bible is the written document that explains the nature of that covenant relationship. It's the document that documents the history of that covenant relationship. And it gives wisdom regarding how we should live in covenant relationship with God. But you might say, well, wait a second. Um, Now, the Bible is full of all these rules and regulations about how we should live and what we should do. It's not really about a relationship, but I want to point to you something really important. You know, the most famous list of rules is the Ten Commandments. Do you know what comes in the verse right before the Ten Commandments? It's what we call the preamble to the Ten Commandments. It's where God, before He gives any rules, any regulations, He says this. He says a statement of fact. I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh, Elohim, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who brought you out or who saved you, rescued you, released you from your bondage in that land. God is making a statement about his relationship with us. Before he tells us the rules, the do's and the don'ts, he says, you are in relationship with me because I have made you to be in relationship with me. I have established my covenant with you. Now, because you're in relationship with me, here's what you do. Do these things. It's the same thing with our marriages. Marriage is essentially a covenant. It's not a covenant established by God with other with man, but it's a, a covenant relationship between a man and a woman where you say, we are in relationship together, and because of that, I will be committed to you. It's a covenant relationship, and there's commitment that's involved with it. God says, I have established a relationship with you, and because of that, I want you to live this way. All of the regulations and laws are meant to define the boundary markers of that relationship. And we need to remember that Isaiah is writing near the end of this Old Testament period, near the end of the, the close of this period, kind of the first part of the, the end of the first part of the covenant document. And in essence, he is a covenant lawyer bringing a suit on behalf of Yahweh. And the facts of the case are this. His people have broken their specific covenant uh, relationship with God and they deserve his wrath. But also the nations have acted against Yahweh and have more generally broken his covenant, his general covenant with all of mankind, and they too deserve his wrath. So let's pick up at chapter 41, verse 1. And you see that Isaiah there calls the coastlands and all peoples to come and to witness this trial. And then in chapter 42, I'm mean, sorry, 41, verse 2, on through the end of, uh, of chapter 42, verse 4, you get the trial proceedings, essentially, basically. The trial plays out. Now, 
I'm not going to go through this in depth. You have your outline in front of you, hopefully, that kind of lays out for you that this comes in nine different sections. I spent the better part of Monday just kind of breaking down those nine sections and how they all fit together. Um, and I wish I could take the next three hours and do that with you, but I'm not going to. You're welcome. Uh, you can read that and study that on your own. Um, just, just, but, but get this in your head that God is bringing, uh, uh, he's called this trial, he's bringing, he's prosecuting this trial, and he's bringing things to a resolution. And uh, in the first part here, we see that there's two types of people that are called to the trial. Uh, two types of people. The nations are called, all those who are against Yahweh, and then his people are called, and that's Jacob or Israel. So God's, God's people and the nations are called to witness this trial. As the trial gets underway, um, we can see that, that really all of history is being presented to us. Look in verses 2 through 7. God begins by kind of saying, who stirred up the one from the east? And this is a picture of all of the pagan rulers and the pagan nations who have just kind of run over the area of Mesopotamia, ruling and reigning all of the Assyrians, the Persians, the Babylonians. And then eventually what's going to come are the Greeks and the Romans uh, from the west. But, but God is showing all of history how he is the one that has been over and ruling all of history. And what has happened in verses 5 through 7, the nations in response to Yahweh doing things in history, they have gone and said, be strong, be courageous. We're going to fight against Yahweh and we're going to win. So that's what the nations are doing. They're setting themselves up against God. And the way that they do that is by trying to overcome God and his people, Israel. And then what you see, starting in verse 8 through verse 20, you see God addressing His people. Look in verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. God has called this trial. He's called these two people His people and the nations... And he is saying to his people, you are my people and I'm going to protect you. He says, I'm going to, he reminds them, I have promised to give you provision and to bless you. But that blessing and that provision of God is not without its difficulties. Look at the weird way Yahweh describes his people in verse 14. He says, fear not, you worm Jacob. This is the God of heaven and earth who has said, I delight in you, Israel. And he says, you're a worm. <laughs> but he says, don't fear, worm, Jacob. Okay. And then look at verse 17. He's going on to describe what his people are like. He's saying, when the poor and the needy seek water, he's talking about his own people. When his people who he loves are poor and needy and they don't even have water to drink, he's saying, well, that's what his people are like. He says, my people are like worms and my people are poor and needy. God says that he will provide and protect his people and yet they're worms and they're poor and they're needy. Well, here's what God is saying. God is saying, you know, I've looked at the plight of my people. And while the wor world looks at them and says they're, they're as good as worms, they're nothing but worms, God says, I'm going to take you worms and I'm going to raise you up. As a matter of fact, he says in verse, verse 15, I'm going to take a worm. So get in your head the picture of an earthworm, a little wiggly earthworm. Um, you ever seen the mouth of an earth, earthworm? 
I mean, they're disgusting things, but they're not very terrifying and scaring. But here he says in verse 15, Behold, I make of you a worm, a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. He gives a picture of a worm with teeth. And what is this worm with teeth going to be able to do? It's going to be able to devour mountains. It's an amazing picture. And then he says, And to the poor and needy, to the worm, I'm going to give everything that you need. God says that I've seen the plight of the poor and needy of my, of my people. I've seen my people and what they're like. And the ones the world despises, the Lord has cherished and he's going to help. Let me just kind of sum all of this up for us. The trial and this trial uh, should be for us a way to view all of history. I mean, this is pulling the lens all the way back and getting the big overview of everything that has happened, everything that is happening, and everything that will happen. And it should help help us to understand kind of the grand sweep of history. Isaiah is writing again toward the end of his epic, of his time. And another time is going to come. He's bringing thousands of years of history into view And over those thousands of years of history, God's people have been enslaved, they've been killed, they've been abused, they've been persecuted, they've been tempted to go away and to be drawn away from Yahweh. And yet, God has promised grand things to them. Isaiah is addressing the question that's on their mind. Can we trust God? Can we trust God? Well, in this trial, Isaiah says, yes, you can trust that not one one bit of injustice or abuse will go unpunished by Yahweh. And the same thing goes for us. You know, we do not know where we are in, the, in, in our time. There are a lot of people who are prognosticating and saying, you know, we're at the very end of the New Testament era. That Jesus has to come back soon. We don't know. Jesus could come back in the next second or he could come back 4,000 years from now. We just do not know. But we don't need to know when Jesus is coming back to rest assured that now, just as then, God is going to bring justice and he's going to make sure that every single sin and everything that happens in this world is going to be punished if it deserves punishment. We can trust in that. You can rest in that. So that kind of helps us see that Isaiah is saying God looks at his people. God understands the plight of his people and justice will be done. Then secondly, we can see Yahweh's judgment in verses 21 through 29. Look at verse 21. He returns back to the case and he goes, okay, set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, bring your evidence. Now, what is he talking about? What is he doing? It's. He's asking for the gods of the nations. He's asking for the the gods that the nations worship. So all of those other pagan gods that they bow down to and worship. He's saying, okay, y'all come and give proof that you are the one that is the true God. And he does that in an interesting way. He asks for the gods of the nations to come and give an accurate assessment of the past. He says to the gods of the nations, represented by the nations, to come and say why things have happened in history the way that they have happened. Why have the Assyrians been so powerful for so long? Before then, why were the Egyptians so powerful? He's saying to you, Egyptians, why are you so powerful? Assyrians, why are you so powerful? And let the gods of the nations come and give an account 
to the, everyone in the world to show their power. In a lot of ways, God is mocking them because he knows that the idols are dumb and they don't understand why things have happened the way that they've happened. Even though the gods of the nations and the nations themselves have said, no, we're the ones that are really in control and we're the ones that are really powerful. Tell us, he says in verse 23, what is to come hereafter? He says, don't just tell us what's happened in the past, but if you're gods, then certainly you can tell us about the future and what's going to happen in the future. And here in the trial, you see that the, the idols, the false gods, can't respond because they're dumb and they don't know. They don't even know what's going to happen in the future. Certainly they can't say what's going to happen, or they, can't, they don't know what happened in the past. They can't say what's going to happen in the future. And God mocks them by saying, Wait, come tell us these things so that we can know you are gods. Now do, do good or do harm that we may be dismayed and terrified. God is literally mocking them saying, oh, show us how big and strong you are. I'm so scared. That's literally what God is saying. And then he gives this pronouncement. He says, to those nations and to those idols, behold, you are nothing and your work is less than nothing. And literally, he says here, I, I, my translation says, an abomination is he who chooses you. Literally, the individuals of the nations that choose you, I am disgusted by them because they have chosen worthless gods. And then he goes on, look in verses 25 through 29. God says, okay, I've asked you to explain history in the future. And God says, let me give you the accurate description of what's happened in the past. And let me tell you what's going to happen in the future. Yahweh says that he is the one that has stirred up the one from the north. It's another way of saying I'm the one that has put all of these rulers, the Assyrians or the Babylonians or any of the other pagan nations that have been in charge. God says, I'm the one that has done that. Yahweh says that he is the one that has stirred up the one from the north. He's the one that made and still makes the nations rise and fall. And then in verse 26, Yahweh points out that none are the gods or the nations even though they know the truth that Yahweh is the one that's in control, they dare not confess the rightness of Yahweh and His sovereign rule over the world. Furthermore, in verse 27, Yahweh says, The good news has been declared over and over out of my city, Jerusalem. The good news of God's salvation went out even back in the Old Testament. The gospel was being declared. Hebrews Chapter 4, verse 2 says, For the gospel came to us just as it came to them, talking about those in the Old Testament. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. The gospel, the good news was proclaimed way back then. But even in Israel, they refused to listen to the good news. So do you understand what that means? That the truth of God was being made plain to them, but they rejected it. And because they rejected it, what happened to them? God says, I am proclaiming you as nothing and emptiness. That's what verse 29, behold, they are all a delusion. They are all a mirage. All those who have set themselves up and refused Yahweh. All those that have refused the good news of Jesus Christ, to put it in our language. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. They rejected Yahweh. They rejected the good news. And God says they have come to nothing. So then we need to get to Yahweh's 
final resolution in verses uh, 1 through 4 of chapter 42. How is Yahweh going to bring the rebellion of the nations against his covenant? How is he going to bring that to conclusion? He says something interesting. He says this, Behold my servant. He says, I'm going to send my servant on the earth. He says that this servant is going to be an amazing servant. God says that he supports or upholds his servant. That he chooses his servant. That he will take pleasure in the obedience of his servant. God says, Yahweh says, I have I will place my spirit on him that he will and that he will make uh, him bring justice against the nations who are in rebellion against them. And how does the servant do this? He does it without making loud noises against them. He does it without bringing a lot of attention to himself. He's not going to do it through great military might or taking advantage of those weaker than himself. That's when it says there, a bruised reed he will not break. He's saying that those who are weaker than himself he will not take advantage of like all the nations around him. But in gentleness, uh, I'm sorry, he's not going to burn out or be crushed by this mission that he goes on. He will not rest until he accomplishes all of his purposes. And then if you look back at chapter 41, verse 1, Isaiah there mentions the coastlands. Well, at the very end of this section in 42.4, it's the coastlands again. And he says the coastlands have been waiting for the servant to come forward. The coastlands have witnessed all of the injustice, all of the things that have, the bad things that have happened in the earth. The coastlands are coming to the trial to witness and they're saying, who is going to accomplish this justice? Who is the servant that's going to come? Well, who is the servant of the Lord? It's Jesus Christ. That is who Isaiah is talking about here. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus applies a similar prophecy from Isaiah 61 to himself. Jesus says that he is the one that God the Father has chosen. He is the one who is strengthened by God. Do you remember at Jesus' baptism, what happened to him? The Spirit of the Lord came and rested on him. And John the Baptist heard a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Do you not see that here? Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. And how did Jesus perform his ministry and his mission? He did it in gentleness and in meekness. And he proclaimed the good news of the coming kingdom He, in fact, did not veer from his course to from the left or to the right. The gospel writers are clear that Jesus set his face like flint or like stone to go to Jerusalem to accomplish all the mission that he was given because he was not he did not grow faint or was not discouraged. And then also, where did Jesus do most of his teaching? It was on the Sea of Galilee, on the coastlands because the coastlands were waiting for his teaching and his law. So all of this is about Jesus. But wait, you say, Jesus didn't come to bring justice against the nations. The nations weren't punished. Here is the glorious good news about Jesus Christ. Jesus, in his first coming, did not bring justice against the nation. But he actually received the justice that God's people deserved for their rebellion against his covenant. Remember at the beginning 
I said one of the major questions of this text is how can God fulfill his covenant promises to his covenant people who were just as rebellious as the nations? How did God do it? He did it because his servant came and God the Father punished God the Son. He punished him for our sin, for his people's sin on the cross. Justice was served. And it was served through the substitute for our sin. That's the good news for us. If you believe in Jesus, justice was done. Your sin has been paid for. But that also brings me to a word of warning. There is a time that is coming when all nations and all individuals will be finally punished for their sin. And that time the servant will come not as a meek and mild son of a carpenter, but he will come as a mighty warrior. And the question for us is how will he find you when he returns? Will you be an enemy of God or will you be a friend? Will you be a worm or will you be fighting against him as a warrior against his sovereign rule? I hope you'll be found in Jesus as his friend today to be safe when he returns. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us this message today. I pray that you would humble us in this message uh, to depend upon and seek Jesus Christ, your beloved servant. Father, we thank you for him and we pray that we all would be found in him this day through faith in his finished work. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.